This is The Isaac Hyde Show. I am your host, Lord Isaac, your Duke of Decisiveness, your Earl of Exceptionalism, your Marquis de Machismo, half my brain dead from all the drivel that comes out of the left, the media, and Hollywood these days, talent on loan from the great mover unmoved, on condition of excellence, and excellence is what will greet you in each and every episode of this podcast. Your home for helpful truths, at least from my perspective, The Isaac Kite Show. In this episode, I'm going to continue on the uh, origin of liberty theme. And uh, had a chance now, just, just recapping, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, you should in this series, uh, although uh, most of my episodes are kind of standalone topics. In this case, I've got several in a row, kind of like uh, I generally do when I'm talking about history. So it's helpful to have the background. I've described the, the courses of Western civilization and how Western Civ came together, uh, in my opinion. Uh, the, the concourse, the, the moment where uh, Roman, Greek, and Jewish civilization came together and brought organization, science, philosophy, and morality uh, into a unique blend that we now call Western civilization, and how that coursed through uh, Western Civ thereafter. And I have taken a chance to bring that up to England, <clears throat> where uh, you know, America, the, the parent country, let's just say, of the United States of America, England and Great Britain, uh, and I've had a chance to talk a little bit about their history. So today I'm going to continue in that vein talking about uh, England and the colonies, right? So we have England over on the one hand in Europe, and there is a, uh, a certain growing sense of liberty there. And there is also a growing circumstance of liberty in the colonies. So well, I'll be focusing on England a little bit. I, I got up through the, the Glorious Revolution last time in, in England. And so just recapping just a little bit. We've seen something unique going on in England, even relative to other Western nations like France, for example, where... Uh, you know, France will be a, a single unitary state uh, for many years, even till today, uh, then a monarchy, uh, kind of a medieval monarchy all the way up to 1789, basically. Uh, but they, they don't see the same kind of resistance from the population to, uh, to the rule of the king, to the divine right to rule. Uh, of the kings of France, as we see in England. In England, we've got this distinct effort to uh, preserve a great freedom of life and movement, of daily life among the English people. Uh, we've seen that the, the common law was promulgated, required uh, judges to kind of work with what was popularly considered just, as well as implementing the king's law. And this set precedents over time that built a, a sense of justice in English society, but not just a top-down justice, a common justice right, that we can all recognize as a common law. And uh, we've watched the English rise up against Charles I and overthrow their king. Uh, again, uh, Mike Duncan has the, the full story on that in the Revolutions podcast, great podcast, uh, but uh, he goes through all the details. I'm just talking about the big picture stuff. But the English come out of the Civil War with freedom of conscience. You know, you can pray your way. Right, whether you want to go to the Church of England, the Methodist Church, uh, synagogue, whatever it is, uh, you are free to pray according to your own conscience in England thereafter. 
And then there's the Glorious Revolution and afterwards the Bill of Rights. And these Bill of Rights that come together, they're not just concocted. They are believed to be ancient liberties that belong to Englishmen for all time. How did this idea develop? Uh, where do we get this stuff? Uh, how did these, these English people come up with the idea that even though there's a king, right, that they have a right to liberty? I mean, going all the way back to Alfred, who had to promulgate his law code basically on the basis that it was all ancient law or church law um, on very solid foundations, right? He couldn't just make the law whatever he wanted it to be. And uh, we, we follow through from there and all the other things that I've, I've talked about uh, through the course of English history thereafter. And you just see, you know, tyrannical kings like Richard II and uh, kings like... Uh, for example, the, the Mad King, Henry VI, <laughs> the English are rising up against them. Charles, uh, James and Charles, who, who tried to do things their way, divine right to rule, right? So uh, we've seen a lot of resistance to kings just doing whatever they want, just raising whatever taxes they want, just taking whatever they want from the people. James II tried to disarm uh, the English, and they believed then that the right to bear arms was an ancient English right that he was depriving them of. Uh, of course, uh, primarily Protestants who wanted to be armed against their purportedly Catholic king. Um, in any case, with James' departure, uh, England goes into this period uh, under William and Mary and then Anne where they are strongly connected to the Dutch. And then after that, uh, with George Hanover, uh, there is still a strong connection between England and the continent. But uh, things change. Uh, the Hanoverians don't really know how to govern. They don't. Uh, George the First doesn't even speak English, so uh, the British start. The, the British government kind of starts to run itself, uh, and there's a uh, politician who kind of begins running England under George the First, and he's shifting now from the the Tory party. Now, when we talk about political parties in England at the time. They're more like social clubs than we would think of a political party, but there, there are some ideological roots to these. The, the Tory party is very centered on uh, English power and uh, the, the, you know, focused on the monarchy and, and that kind of thing. And the Whigs are a little bit more tolerant. They want a, a little bit more popular uh, government that is not as top-down, maybe, uh, and uh, certainly a more generous policy toward the colonies. In any case, the Whigs end up running the government and the, more, the softer, gentler approach, but not without their corruption. Uh, so they have a, an office in England. It's kind of like the treasurer, the chancellor of the exchequer. And the chancellor of the exchequer uh, is a, a very powerful office. And the, the man who holds this office, much of, of George I's reign, is a man named Sir Robert Walpole, who is known as Cock Robin to uh, friends and foes alike, uh, something of his, his nickname. Uh, he becomes so important in the government, in the running and managing of the government on behalf of King George, uh, that people begin to refer to him rather derisively as the prime minister. Right? He, he thinks he's the top guy, right? the prime minister. And the, the title stuck. From then on, Britain would have a prime minister, a, a member of the cabinet, whose job it was to govern the country on behalf of the king. So the king is no longer at the head of the government anymore. There's a, a government that comes out of parliament and they run affairs and the king does his thing and he's at the palace and what have you. And uh, this is kind of a good deal. 
And slowly but surely, the House of Commons, which chooses uh, this prime minister increasingly, uh, they're doing a lot more of the running of the government and the cabinet uh, that they choose, the prime minister. Now, this still is the government on behalf of the king. This is the concept of the king in parliament, right? The king and the parliament running country together. But we're seeing some changes here now. Distinctly, the crown is working with the popular will, not against it. Now, the kings have their wars on the continent and what have you, and ultimately they end up losing all of their continental possessions. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're, they're, they're working together. It's not just the king dictates and the people jump. It's a lot more collegial relationship there that's going on. And as this is all happening, in the colonies, things have changed uh, in a very real-world sense in terms of the shift in, in politics. So colonists are reading people like John Locke and, and all of these, these New Age Whig uh, and, and uh, you know, Enlightenment philo philosophs and the, you know, all these new ideas out there. And uh, they're soaking it up and, and they look around and it's like in the colonies, people live and, and rely very much on themselves or upon their local communities. Uh, when they have Indian raids, it's not the crown that they call upon. Uh, it's their own people who get together and go fight the Indians, right? The Native Americans. Uh, and uh, they, don't, they don't look on their situation as being dependents of Britain. Uh, the, the, and I'm not going to go into the antagonisms. I don't mean to talk about the politics of the antagonisms between Native Americans and American colonists. Uh, obviously... Europeans showed up in the land, and uh, there were those who were very tolerant and, and open-minded toward the Native Americans, and those who wanted to convert them to Christianity, and uh, then there were those who just thought that they should be killed. The natives, uh, seeing their land disappearing, uh, often would take whatever opportunities they could to raid and, and attack the, the colonists, who you know, especially when they were hungry because their hunting grounds had been taken over. Uh, and this led to antagonisms back and forth. This was a war, okay? Groups of people fought wars all across the continent, back and forth. And in most cases, when you actually look at the fighting, the Indians actually had the upper hand. The Native Americans did more damage to the colonists uh, in, the, in the whole. The, the biggest problem they ran into was that no matter how many colonists they killed or how many battles they won or whatever, there were more colonists. People coming from Europe and uh, people having babies <laughs> over here. So uh, the population just kept moving uh, across the continent, whether they wanted it to or not. Uh, you might call it the, the unstoppable, inevitable force of history. Uh, there, was, there was not much that could be done about it. In any case, these people are doing this. They're having these babies. They're taking care of themselves. They're defending themselves from attack. Uh, they're living in their little communities. They're farming. Uh, they're getting their, their crops to market. And all of this stuff they're doing in their little communities, uh, and they're doing for themselves. Uh, a very de facto situation of liberty has arisen. The great American uh, mid-20th century civics and political philosoph of his, in his own right, Clinton Rossiter, uh, expounded on this in a book called Seed Time of the Republic. Seed Time of the Republic is one of the greatest books ever written. Uh, I can't say enough. I, I very much love Clinton Rossiter's work. It's a true tragedy uh, that he died long before I was born and I could never meet the man. And, uh, but that's one of the sad things about reading uh, great men uh, and women in the past is that they're all dead. <laughs> you can't, you know, I can't just call up uh, Queen Elizabeth the first and ask her what she was thinking when she did such and such. Just, you know, she's dead. 
Uh, neither can I call up Clinton Rossiter and, and talk to him about what he's doing or follow him on Facebook or whatever, right? You know, he's not here. In any case, uh, in Seed Time of the Republic, he describes how in the colonies, this English liberty that is a fancy of the English. Up to this point, yes, they've thrown off kings and they have you, but they still do generally what the king wants. But this, this notion that's just kind of a flight of fancy and they have this love affair with this idea of liberty becomes a reality in Virginia, in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in New York. Uh, English-speaking people who have moved to the colonies uh, for this, this, this stuff becomes life for them. So as John Locke is writing about, uh, you know, his famous uh, treaties that, that Thomas Jefferson quotes in the uh, Declaration of Independence about how uh, the purpose of government, the government exists to protect the life, liberty, and property of the people, right? Uh, that that is its purpose, to protect our natural rights. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, of course, replaces property with the more politically correct pursuit of happiness. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a, a little bit more pragmatic, I think, in terms of, you know, he had, he had a, a cause to sell, uh, so property wasn't quite going to work there. Uh, also, um, property created some trouble for him because uh, Jefferson, at least at this point, was a firebrand uh, writing about uh, how slavery was the fault of the king and, and blaming him for saddling America with slavery and calling for its uh, abolition, which is a little bit more than the the attendees of the Continental Congress were willing to tolerate in their time. Uh, unfortunately, even though abolitionists themselves, John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, understood that the southern colonies were not going to go along with this if, if slavery was being attacked that way. In any case, so let's talk a little bit about Europe and the ideological changes that are going on there and how that's impacting the colonists. Because the colonists are reading the same thing the Europeans are. The difference is they're not living a European life. They are relying on their own uh, recognizance, let's just say, to live their lives uh, by their own conscience and by their own efforts. Uh, and they don't really see the impact of the larger government, if you will. They don't see the crown or their, the crown forces uh, very often. So as we head into the Enlightenment, as we head into the, the late 1600s and the early 1700s, and uh, we have Descartes, I think before I am, and all of this going on, all these philo philosophical minds out there postulating great things and thinking great things and falling away from the dogmas of the past. We're no longer caught up in, you know, what the Bible says. We're a little bit more focused on, okay, well, what, what does science, scientific observation tell me? Uh, and so they take some of that Aristotelian and Socratic thinking uh, and they uh, sort of repackage it for a modern time. And this leads to, essentially, to what we now call science, uh, ultimately the scientific method and uh, the concept of objective fact, right? But at this time, they're kicking things around and they're, they're talking to each other about different things. You know, Sir Isaac Newton uh, and his great thoughts about gravity and that kind of thing are going along hand in hand with people like John Locke. But these people don't, don't live in a vacuum. Uh, they have a time and a place. Shortly after the English Civil War, a man named Thomas Hobbes, who was a, a teacher and tutor <coughs> to uh, noble children, wrote a book called Leviathan, in which he basically argued that the purpose of government was to protect the lives of the people, that, that, and that to that end we should be willing to tolerate even an abusive government, the Leviathan, just as long as it protects us. 
It's an interesting idea uh, coming from an Englishman. There, there's two points about this I want to make. <clears throat> the first is, why does government have to have a purpose, right? If a king has a divine right to rule, why are we even arguing about why there's a government, right? And the second point is that he had just witnessed the chaos of the English Civil War to the point where the noble families that he was teaching fled to France. And he, he sat out much of the English Civil War in France, but he watched the chaos, right? Uh, England fall into dictatorship under Oliver Cromwell and have these religious zealots, these Ironsides riding around, uh, taking over the government and the Puritans pushing their, their uh, you know, sort of strict and rigid version of Protestant Christianity on people. No dancing, no celebrating. <clears throat> I'm not going to have any more of this Renaissance fun and all this free love nonsense. No, 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 we're not having any of that. Nobody's going to have any fun. We're going to do everything very biblically. We've got Oliver Cromwell pacing back and forth in the House of Parliament, uh, pounding his fist into his, his hand about there's a right and a wrong, and we're not going to tolerate this wrong anymore and the moral corruption and so on and so forth. And after all this, Hobbes just says, you know, we should just trust the government to protect us. And as long as they protect us, even if they abuse us a little, we'll, we'll put up with it. And so the argument he's basically coming back to is, look, you know, we've got all this, this English liberty and all this. Oh, it sounds good. Okay, until you have armies careening through your villages and cities, uh, destroying things, and there's the raping and the pillaging and theft and the death and the starvation. And uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't want any of that. And he says, no big idea. This big freedom, liberty, none of this is worth that. We should just trust the government and they will keep us safe. We will, we will be saved from violent death, even if uh, some of our money is taken and even if we don't have complete freedom. Interesting approach. Okay, but what's really interesting for me about Hobbes is that he's making an argument for why we need government. And so while he's, his argument, in my opinion, is backward looking, he's looking at the chaos of the English Civil War and he's like, no, 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 whatever big ideas you have, can it, stow it, Let's just stick with the status quo and, and the government that we have. At least that way we don't all get killed or starved to death, right? And that's all fine and well, but he has provided a purpose to the government, right? His argument is that there is a reason for government. And now we open a can of worms. Pandora's box is open, for those who know the story, and out comes this, this evil, this, this pestilence, let's just say, uh, of... Uh, the purpose of government. What is the purpose of government? You don't see, you know, when you look at thought, thinkers like uh, Voltaire and Rousseau, they also come up with their own purposes for government, uh, but it's not quite the same reasoning. It, it's, it's, you know, they, they're thinking of societies as a whole and the need for government. Voltaire embraces the benevolent dictator basically the idea that if Europe is going to be ruled by despots and various kinds, you know, from Frederick the Great to, uh, you know, the King of France and, and what have you, we'll just, you know, but a benevolent dictator is the best we're going to have, or a benevolent king. This is what we're looking for. And uh, he's a very pragmatic uh, person. Meanwhile, you know, Hobbes is saying, we'll just go with, with the government we have and we'll just stick with it even if it abuses us. And meanwhile, a few other philosophers are starting to postulate a little more deeply, think this through a little bit. What is the purpose of government? And this begins with John Locke uh, in a big way. You know, there are other philosophers and other thinkers. I, I focus on him because uh, he's quoted in the Declaration of Independence, and his ideas are obviously of great import. He takes Hobbes, Locke, Hobbes 
argument a step further. And uh, you may see he locks in <laughs> a new definition. But he's saying, uh, yes, there's a purpose of government, but it's not just to protect us from a violent death. Yes, it's here to protect our life, but also to protect our liberty and our property. It's not just that we should tolerate the government as long as it protects our lives, but we should also expect the government to protect our rights. Our basic freedoms should be protected by government and our property rights protected by government. Interesting thinking now. He's taken Hobbes a step further and said, no, obviously a government that does this, we should tolerate, right? That we have, our lives are protected, we have our liberties and we have our property protected. And so we're going to go with that. Interesting idea. Again, we're deep into this English concept of why should there be government? And really, a lot of people looking around like, well, of course we have to have government and people need organization, that kind of thing. But back to why is there government and what should government do? And when I get back from the break, I'm going to introduce a new character to this uh, liberty, the story of liberty, and uh, one of the greatest uh, proponents of liberty you've never heard of. And uh, we'll, we'll delve into his line of thinking about the Democratic Republic. Years ago, I saw the writing on the wall and moved out of California. Let me tell you, with the high cost of living, high taxes, high regulations, high crime, it was no place to run a business and certainly no place to raise children. Now with all the mandates and lockdowns, it's become unbearable. So if you're looking to make your way to a red state like I did and enjoy the, the breath of freedom that you get in the red state life, then I want you to call my friend Paul Chabot at Conservative Move, conservativemove.com. Paul and his uh, associates at Conservative Move help people get relocated from blue states to red states, whichever red state you're interested in moving to, conservativemove.com. Or you can call 800-277-5487, 800-277-5487. Let Paul and the folks at Conservative Move get you set up in the breath of free air in red state America. All right, back from the break. So we've got John Locke out there and he's kicked off these ideas about what is the purpose of government and the, the purpose of government is to protect our rights. And so English Republicans or the beginning of English Republicanism as an ideology are laid. People in, in English cafes and in uh, posh parties and uh, you know, out at country estates, people are having discussions about is the nature of government and what are our liberties and how are they protected and these kinds of things. People are talking about these ideas. To say republicanism does not necessarily mean that people were not monarchists, right? These republican, this concept of republicanism as a belief system is not necessarily set against the monarchy. They are simply describing what their society is and how it works in the sense of uh, government, you know, including for the crown. So I don't want to, I don't want to confuse that. Now, a republic is a country without a king. Okay, so a, a country, not just a country without a king, but a country that is ruled by more than one person, you know, uh, but not a king. And often dictatorships call themselves republics because they technically don't have a king. Uh, but I'm not really sure we should include them <coughs> among the republics in any case. Um, <clears throat> so... This, this concept has been kicked around, and, and as these ideas are, are 
being kicked around, uh, slowly but surely taking root. We got the English Civil War going on. In this time, when all this is happening, we have this man, Baruch Spinoza. Now, Spinoza is relatively early in the Enlightenment, and uh, he writes, in, in, for the most part, in the late 1600s, <clears throat> um, well before the, uh, the English get their... You know, they've got their civil war. Before the, the Glorious Revolution, all this stuff is happening. Spinoza is turning some interesting ideas. Now, Baruch Spinoza, better known as Benedict Spinoza, was a member of a Portuguese exile family. Uh, and f for Jewish exiles of Portugal, for the Portuguese diaspora, uh, ergo the name Spinoza, uh, right, is uh, Portuguese in origin, uh, he is kind of in an interesting place. He studies Judaism, and he's a great fan of Judaism, but he's also a fan of Enlightenment thinking. And so there's some debate back and forth as to whether he was actually excommunicated from his synagogue or not, but uh, at least one person before him had been humiliated to the point of suicide uh, because, uh, as a Jew, he had written about Enlightenment ideas like, you know, God and nature are uh, connected and, and these kinds of things and less dogmatic views of God. Uh, it's also possible that after the fact, uh, it's possible the Jewish community uh, tried to disown Spinoza later on as more secular uh, philosophers followed in his footsteps. So they may have forged the document that purports to have excommunicated him. In any case, whatever the case, uh, at a certain point as an adult, Spinoza left the Jewish community uh, and uh, purported to be Protestant, even though he did not attend church, uh, to anyone's knowledge. And he had a uh, patron who helped him pay the bills and eat while he wrote all of these great books, like The Ethics. And uh, Spinoza's a, a brilliant thinker, uh, so ahead of his time. Uh, Spinoza is a, a, you know, his one, I, I think his greatest philosophical achievement personally is panentheism. This is a term you're never going to hear. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about religious thinking some other time. But, you know, you have dualists who believe that God is separate from the world, right? God is up in heaven or up in the sky somewhere, uh, is a, a character that's kind of human-like and is separated from the world. And the world isn't necessarily, like, maybe it's answerable to God, but it isn't necessarily part of God. And then there are pantheists, including the old Western pagan belief system, uh, but uh, now in the, in the era of the Enlightenment, you have these deists who are coming forward, and they believe in pantheism, that God and nature are one, right? Uh, God is a force of nature, you might hear people say. Uh, in fact, Thomas Jefferson, referring to God in the, in the uh, Declaration of Independence, says, nature's God, right? Uh, this is an interesting approach to God. Well, Spinoza says, uh, not only is God and nature one? Not, not only are they one, but God is still conscious, right? So we have a conscious thinking personality of God, if you will, who is also one with nature, right? And so he kind of marries dualism and pantheism so that no one has to keep those two separated anymore. And thus created a philosophical model for moving forward. Uh, in terms of, of deism and a more rational approach to the divine, 
right? God is neither a just you know some person sitting on a throne in some mythical realm looking down on us benevolently, uh, nor is God simply one with nature, you know, the God of nature, right? God is part of nature, and all things are part of God, but they are also separate. Also, philosophically, with pan, panentheism, he refers to all things as having the same substance, uh, kind of like the concept of Dharma in uh, Buddhism or Li in uh, Chinese philosophy. So he gets that everything is made of one substance. And, you know, we start to get this point that, you know, humans are essentially all one. And so if you hurt another person, you're hurting yourself in essence. And that's, um, I think, a critical foundation for Western voluntarism, as I've talked about before. Because if, if uh, forcing someone to do something, if making someone my slave and forcing them to work for me hurts that person, deprives them of their liberty and their natural rights, then I'm hurting myself because we are one substance, right? It damages me in that that person is not able to achieve their full potential, right? These are deep philosophical thoughts, but none of that has anything to do with what I'm going to talk about in his uh, development of political thought. That is an interesting point that I think leads to the larger sort of philosophical question about liberty and freedom and uh, letting people live their lives their way and uh, try to achieve their potential. So that might be a, talk, a topic for another time later on in all of this. But one of the things Spinoza talks about that's way ahead of his time is the democratic republic. So as English century, English enlightenment in the early 18th century develops, late, late 17th, so late 1600s, early 1800s, uh, early 1700s, excuse me, uh, as this is slowly developing, the 18th century is, is the 1700s, uh, there's a, a strong sense of gentry republicanism in that. And that is that... <clears throat> You know, it's the it's the masters, the freeholders, the, the landed men who own estates. Not necessarily the nobility, because those people have hereditary power and titles handed down to them. But the landed gentry, and maybe the merchant class too, uh, but, but freeholders. People who are completely independent. You know, think about in your life. Do you know some freeholders? Uh, let's say a small business owner who is uh, their own business person. Uh, maybe the head of a household. Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, you might have an artisan who has apprentices. Okay, uh, so among an, I want to say an elite class. I, I don't like using that term elite because it gives you a sense of like the nobility or what have you. But not everyone is the point. The common man, the guy who's out there farming, or these these you know uh, apprentices and trade artisans and some of these some of these lower people, you know, these working class people. These, people who are you know, close to the land and, and who work all the time. We're not really talking about liberty for them. They aren't freeholders. They shouldn't vote. They really don't know how to make decisions for themselves. They're just a rabble. The less said of the urban population, the better, right? And these, these, these drunken villagers out in the, in the rural villages, right? Uh, hicks, you might say, right? So we're not really talking about... Uh, a, a really democratic republicanism at this point. They're talking about uh, a group of people who are not the nobility kind of slowly co-opting government and becoming uh, the, let's say, the, the national uh, community, okay? Spinoza's sitting here, however, and he's saying, you know, let's take it a step farther. What if 
we take this republicanism and this republic we're talking about, and we bring the people into it. Yes, the common people. These people you like to look down on, these working class people, these artisans, these farmers, these uh, villagers and uh, urban, uh, the urban rabble, right? These people, he says, can also make decisions. And yeah, maybe they might make the wrong decisions, but they'll learn and they'll grow and they'll make better decisions, hopefully, right? And so he starts talking about this concept of democratic republicanism, of a republic that is driven by elected officers who are elected by a broader portion of society, right? By the greater number of the people. And therefore, answerable and accountable to the people. Whoa, dude. I mean, Baruch, whatever you're smoking, whatever mushrooms you've been eating, you need to lay off that stuff, you need to come back to reality, get your feet back on the ground, come on. The Netherlands are ruled by a Stadtholder who's basically a prince, even though technically the Netherlands are a republic. It'll be none of this democracy nonsense. Who the frack are these people anyway? Do you think the urban rabble is going to vote? Do you think these people can make decisions? No, these people are, you know, they're, they're useless. They don't know anything, right? What do you, you, you know, come on, Spinoza. Just wake up, smell the coffee, um, come back to reality. Let's, let's think this through here. Let's not be crazy or ridiculous, right? Uh, and yet, you know, what he's talking about will become the fact in the 19th century, right? In English society, in American society, we will evolve into Spinoza's idea 200 years after he talked about it. So, um, you know, between 150 and 200 years. But, but basically, you know, as he's writing about this, it takes a long time to uh, develop the idea. It, it reminds me a lot of like Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman did all these, uh, he used to doodle with these like particle directions and this kind of thing, which way particles would move in different circumstances, this kind of thing. Uh, and people have been going through his notes for years. Uh, Richard Feynman worked on the Manhattan Project, for those of you in Rio Linda who don't know. Uh, and is one of uh, the greatest minds of the 20th century. And uh, Feynman uh, did a lot of doodling about these, these particle things. There was no way to test anything that he wrote about back in the 50s and 60s. And so as people have been going back through it later on, now we have the technology to test some of that stuff. And so you have a man who in the 40s, 50s, and 60s doodled, basically, about particles and particle physics and this kind of stuff. And half a century later, after he died, we now finally have the technology to begin testing some of his ideas. I mean, that's a man ahead of his time, okay? Um, that's a guy who's way ahead of his time. Well, Spinoza, the same thing. Now, technology moved a little slower back then, so it took a, a century and a half for people to begin dabbling in what he's writing about, uh, but it will come to pass. And by the 20th century, uh, this will become the de facto state of being. Right. By the end of the 20th century, with the fall of communism, the concept of the democratic republic now reigns supreme. Right. Uh, this is this is the model for human government. Right. And, and but, you know, 400 years before when Spinoza is writing about it, uh, it was radical out there idea. People might have thought he was, uh, you know, a little wasted or taking mushrooms or whatever. You know, lay off the sauce, Baruch. You had a little bit too much lahaim. You've had a little bit too much to drink. Let's uh, let's chill out. Uh, so, as English republicanism is developing, 
and uh, Spinoza's ideas start being contemplated and they start thinking about maybe more people being involved in government, this kind of stuff. England is still a monarchy. Okay, when George III, the Duke of Cumberland, uh, who, you know, has been up in Scotland fighting the, the last of the Jacobite Wars, uh, when he finally succeeds to the throne from his uh, father, George II, he becomes King of England. Now, his older brother, Frederick, was supposed to uh, succeed to the throne, but he died. He predeceased his father, and therefore... Uh, it was George, who was the second son, who didn't expect to be king, who became king. And George III really has a, he's a mover and shaker. He's got some ideas for government. We're going to get out there in the colonies. We're going to do some stuff. Oh, it's going to be great. And there's this whole king and parliament thing. And, and parliament is kind of a stick in the mud. They don't necessarily want to go along with a lot of his stuff. And it isn't too long. And we get into the Seven Years' War. Now, the Seven Years' War in Europe is what they call it in the colonies and therefore the United States. We call it the French and Indian War because uh, the French and their Native American allies, uh, because the French were, the fewer French people came. And so the French uh, were, they were more cordial with the Native Americans. And instead of kind of unsettling them or trying to move them or fighting with them as much, they traded with them more and, and were friendlier. Uh, but they didn't come in the same kind of numbers. In any case, the French controlled Canada. You know, that's why it's Quebec, Montreal, right? I mean, these are these places in, uh, up there in, in uh, Quebec that, uh, you know, this is, this is the, uh, you know, the French colonies, really. Uh, also, uh, you know, New Orleans, New Orleans, right? So this is, this is uh, French territory at the time. In any case, the English uh, crown comes over to the colonies, and the, the Seven Years' War was fought a little bit on the continent, but it was mostly fought in colonial possessions. And uh, the English ended up taking over the Sugar Island of Martinique, and meanwhile, uh, the English took over Canada, invaded and eventually captured Canada, drove the, the French and their Indian allies out, and then uh, France ultimately uh, went, would go ahead and cede uh, New Orleans and Louisiana, the territory named after King Luis, Louisiana, uh, they would cede that to Spain. And that, of course, made it so that, well, it wasn't French anymore, so the British weren't going to take it from France. Right. Uh, Britain also took Florida. Okay. And so uh, this is a big victory. And the English colonists are, are great, you know, and the, the English soldiers, if you look at the officers out there, and they're, you know, these, these colonials, oh my God, these people are, are they're stupid and they're so provincial and including their, their colonial militia leaders, men like this George Washington. God, this guy's incompetent, can't do anything right, can't stand working with these people. So the, the English regulars have nothing positive to say about these Americans. Uh, and, and after this war, of course, the, the crown is going to want to collect taxes to help pay down the debt that they've taken on that has benefited the colonists quite a bit. And to prevent further conflict, they're also going to rein the colonists in in their land grab. So, you know, the Appalachian Mountains are it. That's it. You're, you're not going any deeper in. You're not, not going into Ohio. You're not going to the Tennessee Valley. You're not going out that way. Uh, you're going to stop at the Appalachians, and the rest of that country is Indian country. We leave it to the Native Americans, and you guys are going to stay put on the East Coast. And if you don't fight the Indians, then we don't have to send troops over there and pay armies to go fight the, uh, your, your dumb wars that you people keep starting. 
the English are good. We're done. And, and they'll have a, a stamp act and the colonists will pay a little bit of taxes and that'll help pay down the, the massive debt that Britain has. And during this process, uh, in order to get Parliament to fight the war, the king leans on William Pitt. And Pitt is a Whig who is uh, much more collegial in terms of how the colonies should be governed, much nicer guy. The king doesn't like him. He prefers the Tories, the, the more monarchy-oriented and British Empire-oriented political party, if you please. Uh, and uh, so he's not a great fan of, of Pitt, but Pitt is the guy who can get things done. Pitt basically wins the Seven Years' War. And he puts the French in such a bad position, uh, France and Spain, that um, they're ultimately kind of forced, in order to get Martinique and some of these Sugar Islands back and this kind of stuff, they're like, okay, we'll do some horse trading here. Obviously, the Sugar Islands are more valuable than anything in North America. So yeah, you guys can have Canada. We'll give uh, Louisiana to Spain. And, you know, that way everybody everybody's happy, right? Okay. Um, so we've reached this situation here. Again, we have all of these thinkers and there's all this talk and all this discussion about natural rights and liberties, ancient English liberties and all these ideas. And you can see we're headed for a collision course here. Because while we've been talking about these ideas in England, the people in the Americas have been living them. Again, uh, Clinton Rossiter's book, Seed Time of the Republic, we find that uh, when we look at the Americas, the American colonies in the 1760s and 1770s, People are self-reliant. People are essentially equal. They're the noble classes. Uh, men don't look down on other men. Uh, people meet in, uh, you know, county and, and local village governments, and they have, um, they have these town meetings, basically, and they resolve their problems that way. And nobody feels stepped on and mistreated. In all these colonies, they have elected assemblies that are kind of like the House of Commons, but for their colonies. So South Carolina has an assembly. Massachusetts has an assembly. Connecticut has an assembly. And so people are electing these guys. The, the Senate in each colony is, uh, the upper house, is mostly appointed by the king. Right. Uh, and we, we see a lot of these colonies were initially privately run colonies. So they belonged to private landholders and, and people who were kind of governing them and what have you. They start to become crown colonies. The king starts taking them back. And so now the king is appointing the governor and the king is appointing the senators. And there, there starts to be some serious chafing in how government is done. But these aren't people who are reliant on government. These are, these are people that rely on themselves in their mind's eye. And to the English, they're a bunch of, you know, petulant, colonists. Like, we just won this big war, spent all this money to take, to take care of you guys, and now we're tired of it. We want you to pay your fair share of taxes. But it's the way in which they went about it that would create the collision course. More on that when we get back from the break. So I live in a small town, and there are times when I want to cruise across town, and it's, it's a little too far to walk, but I'm not really up for getting in the car and driving all the way over. Well, it's times like that I like to get on my Unagi scooter and just scoot around. Also fun when the kids are out riding their bikes and I don't have to go through all the effort of pedaling a bike. I can just cruise around on my scooter. The Unagi scooter is the iPhone of scooters. High-tech, sleek finish, sharp looking. This is the scooter to cruise around in, whether you're in a small town like me or the big city. It has uh, motors on both wheels, plenty of horsepower. You get good speed out of it. Some people have gotten upwards of 16 miles an hour on these things. Uh, great for cruising around town. Uh, decent range too. 
and you, when you're done with it, plug it in and recharge and it's ready to go. Also, you can flip the handle down and the whole thing becomes a convenient, carryable uh, object. You just take it like a suitcase into work with you or uh, wherever you're going. So, Unagi scooters. We've seen in England the development of the idea that the king should rule with the people. All right, slowly developing, and we use the term people loosely, right? The, the upper, you know, the gentry, the landed gentry, the merchants, the, the high, you know, the, well, the well-to-do freeholders of the country. And that's slowly beginning to work in Britain, even though George is kind of against the grain a little bit because he's trying to push his own policies. Uh, that's working there to a certain degree. Meanwhile, over in the Americas, people have come to a new reality of liberty. So I want to talk a little bit now about what is this liberty we're talking about. We've set the groundwork for it, and I've described a lot of, you know, how it came together, and you can see some of it at work, but what does it mean? Uh, liberty does not mean libertarian, right, it is, or minarchy, right, it is not a minimum of government. There is government. Uh, there are, you know, there's a sheriff in each county, you know, somebody whose job it is to uh, to police and uh, to make sure that everybody is safe and following the law and that kind of there are laws uh, and there are means to enforce the laws, right? There is uh, resistance to every government policy, sometimes pretty sound resistance and solid resistance, but it doesn't always stop what, what needs to be done. But there's a general idea that people should be free to do as they please to the greatest extent with a minimum of government. And government should step in and force people to do things only when necessary. Right? We can't allow murder. So if somebody murders someone, government needs to arrest the murderer, try them, and punish them for the murder, right? Well, that makes sense. Uh, but just because there's the possibility of murder doesn't mean we have to have uh, one police officer for every 10 people and someone looking over your shoulder all the time, right? Uh, certainly, there should be no one telling you what, what to believe uh, or how to live, right? Generally speaking, people just need the greatest freedom, but they also have to be responsible with that freedom. And that's where the law comes in and, and that kind of thing. So this is kind of a complicated concept here of what is American liberty. And the best definitions I've seen of American liberty come from Clinton Rossiter, whom I mentioned earlier, Sea Time of the Republic, great book. Uh, but he also wrote, wrote a, a great book called uh, Marxism, a view, a view from America. And in Marxism, A View from America, he describes uh, Marxist thought, uh, that is leftist, communist, socialist thought, and contrasts that with the American ideology of liberty. And that, that's a lot of fun because now, <clears throat> instead of just explaining a concept to you, he contrasts it with another ideology and you're able to see how those two ideologies think differently and, and that kind of thing. Another great book. Uh, there is no such thing as a bad book by Clinton Rossiter. All of his books are awesome. They are all worthy of reading. And uh, you don't have to worry about that because I'm going to talk a lot about his books here um, in the podcast. But if you're interested in knowing what I'm talking about, you know, go check those books out. Seed Time of the Republic, Marxism, A View from America. Uh, Rossiter's book on the American presidency is brilliant, absolutely brilliant and I mean he's basically he wrote this book and, and it was published in 1959 and he basically prophesied the next 20 years of the presidency uh, in his book. Uh, he really gets 
you know, what was going on. And I, I'd say the only reason he didn't quite prophesy beyond that was just that, uh, you know, he, he was a man of his time and he could only see so far in the future, right? And, but, you know, he, he, could, he could see a good distance into the future and, and see which direction things were going to go. Which is fascinating. He also has a book on the Constitutional Convention, uh, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, I'm really fond of one of his books, uh, Constitutional Dictatorship, where he talks about governments that have constitutional provisions allowing them to enact emergency powers. And he talks about how the French do this, how the Germans do this, and uh, how the British did it in the First World War versus the Second World War. Uh, and the concept of emergency powers. And of course, that in the American and, and British system, we don't really have emergency powers, essentially. If you have an emergency, then the government officials basically have to break the law, and then they have to be able to defend themselves later in court that uh, breaking the law in that, in that instance was necessary to abrogate the emergency, to, to ameliorate the circumstances. In other words, you know, we had an emergency, therefore we had to do this thing in order uh, to break these laws in order to, uh, in order to survive, in order to win, uh, you know, and even in our constitution, the U.S. Constitution, we have uh, the suspension of habeas corpus, uh, which is kind of our one big emergency provision that, under certain circumstances, uh, we can take away the rules of evidence and say that they no longer need to provide evidence that a person needs to be locked up, you know, and that that allows the government to lock people up indefinitely. Uh, and there's some problems with that, <laughs> as you'll see if you get to the Civil War, the American Civil War. Uh, and obviously the internment of the Japanese, the Nisei, the, the Japanese Americans in the Second World War, uh, both of which are extremely problematic situations. You know, we had uh, churches closed and newspapers shuttered in the Civil War, and uh, people were tried, civilians were tried in military tribunals and executed. I mean, these are things that, that are completely irregular and would never be tolerated in any other uh, political context in the United States, but, you know, the emergency required it. Anyway, Ruster writes a lot of these great books, and <clears throat> they, they give you food for thought, and they really make you think about constitutional provisions and liberties and that kind of thing and how they work differently. Like you begin to understand one of the reasons why maybe we don't have more formalized emergency powers in our system and why emergency powers should be used only sparingly. Hmm. So, um, so we have this concept of, of kind of responsible liberty, that, that we're all going to kind of work together hand in hand and, and help each other, but we're, we're going to leave government out of it and people are going to live their lives in freedom to the greatest degree possible uh, on their own responsibility and only when people break the law and only when people go to do harm to others is the government going to step in. And there are variations and degrees of that and obviously as American liberty has evolved uh, we've gone, you know, we, we've gone there. Like we've said that the government is going to put an end to child labor, right? By the mid-20th century we had, we had done with child labor. Uh, we, we were tired of this idea that kids could be working in factories. And so, you know, it took several Supreme Court cases because the Supreme Court kept striking it down. The Congress would pass a law banning child labor, and then the courts would strike it down. They have to come back and pass another law and back and forth and that kind of thing. Uh, but there are a long list of areas where, you know, we've ultimately had government intervene, and not always for the best. Right? You know, child labor is an example where there was a positive intervention. Civil rights, right? This was a positive intervention of the government. But there have been some negative ones. 
federal involvement in education has destroyed the public education system. The public education system did not need the help to destroy itself. <laughs> public education is the, the greatest failure of any institution in American history on, on the largest scale. It is the greatest, grandest, largest scale institutional failure in, man, in, in the history of America. I, I would say the history of mankind, but then we've had the Soviet Union. So uh, I think that's a, a slightly larger institutional failure and a lot more people died. Anyway, so we have this concept of liberty that is developed. Uh, Americans are living it. The English are milling around about it. They're chewing on it. They're discussing it back and forth. You know, well, what, what does it mean, these English liberties? And to what extent should people have freedom and these kinds of things? So it's kicking around. People are talking about it. People are thinking about it. And it's going to lead to some significant changes as these two societies, the English who are chewing, on, chewing the fat, on this idea of liberty and, and, the, and slowly moving in a more democratic direction, which doesn't take much when you're a monarchy, and Americans who are already living a democratic life and in a democratic society, but who are still technically ruled by the crown from England, right? Uh, collision course here, and we're going to run into some problems. Uh, as this kind of stuff is happening, speaking of, of chewing the fat, and I, I have to take this diversion because I'm going to talk about it later uh, as I talk about the development of Amer early American history, we have David Hume. David Hume is a Scottish philosopher. Now, Scotland has a lot of great philosophers in this time. Uh, we have Adam Smith, who writes about the wealth of nations and, and describes laissez-faire, which as a, a sort of an economic, I want to say, the, the, the economic aspect of liberty. It, it gives, it kind of fleshes out economic thinking. We don't understand this, but back in that time there was this mercantilism that uh, each country was trying desperately to produce all of its own goods and uh, be self-sufficient. And uh, there was, uh, you know, trade was not as heavily emphasized and uh, this kind of thing. And it, government uh, issued all of these monopolies. And so, uh, Adam Smith was really radical in this idea that, you know, if the government just buds out, just, just get out. They butt out. Everybody is going to be fine. Uh, it is not uh, out of charity that we should expect our daily bread from our baker and our cheese from our cheesemaker. It's because we're going to, you know, they're going to serve their own interests. We're going to walk in to buy bread or cheese or meat. And the, uh, these people, these shop owners are going to receive our money, right? They'll make it make, you know, do the, do the labor to produce the food. They will give it to us in exchange for money that they can then use to buy things. And these voluntary transactions are going to amalgamate into a national economy, right? Millions and millions of individual choices are going to come together in a grand economy without uh, government control, uh, direction from a central plan. And that is an interesting concept, and it fleshes out a little bit this concept of liberty, because economics isn't a sexy topic. So nobody who's sitting around in these cafes and discussing, well, what is the meaning of liberty, and is government there to protect our natural rights, and this kind of thing. Uh, you know, they're, they're talking about these ideas. Economics doesn't really come up. But Adam Smith adds the economic quality to liberty and gives it a, uh, a voice. Right? The liberty involves, generally speaking, and I... I say again, because, you know, if you know your American history, you know that government is ultimately going to get involved in the marketplace for better or worse. 
but, you know, the idea is that basically wherever we can, to the greatest extent possible, we let people engage in voluntary transactions, and that makes people happy. They work and earn money and spend their money their way, uh, and they don't, you know, no one tells them how to spend it. Anyway, David Hume is a little bit more of a realist, uh, much more down to earth, and he really kind of throws a little cold water on this natural rights thing. And he says, uh, this idea that governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. It's a nice thought and it's nicely stated and it's a nice idea until you realize that if we don't have a government, we're going to be conquered from the outside. And people don't necessarily consent to be governed uh, consent to just powers to be governed. In other words, oftentimes we have to consent to government, whether it's just or not. Again, he, he kind of goes back a little bit there to Hobbes, like, well, we want to protect our lives, right, and our fortunes. And uh, if, uh, you know, opposing the government so that we can have our natural rights, this kind of thing, and, and we don't consent to be governed this way, can be harmful and detrimental to our rights and our liberties. So Hume throws a little cold water on this, even in that time. Uh, as we're headed into the, the late 18th century. And he kind of brings people down to reality a little bit. Like, yeah, this stuff sounds good. Okay, but let's not forget that we are human beings. And uh, people, as, as you know, there's this term sheeple and this kind of thing. Anyway, people do have a tendency to follow the leader. A, a lot of people don't know what to do, or when they're, they're not sure what to do, they prefer to be told what to do by someone else. That, that's part of human nature. So all this stuff about, you know, just natural liberties and it's human nature to have a maximum of freedom and this kind of thing, maybe not so much. Maybe there's a little cold water to be thrown on that. But still, people are chewing fat on this idea. And as that happens, there are this, there starts to be this back and forth between Parliament and the colonies. And this is going to ratchet up to full-scale war. And it's a, a war that's going to be uh, difficult and murderous, and uh, it's going to, you know, be financial drain on all parties involved, and it's going to be a big problem. A big, you know, it's going to weaken the British Empire. Ultimately, so uh, these are some of the ideas that are being kicked around there, and I wanted to make sure I got a, a fairer definition of where liberty is at this point, and you know, to give it, um, you know, to flesh it out and that kind of thing and give a better idea of what is American liberty. And so just before I, I kind of round out this episode, in the next episode, I'll dive into the, the, the Cousins War, you might say, or the, the American uh, Revolution or the American War of Independence, as I prefer to call it, uh, because the revolution had already happened, right? The, the, the lifestyle, the, the democracy, the democratic republicanism, if you will, it was already alive and well in America. People were already living that life, <clears throat> right? They didn't need to write a constitution, to declare independence and write a constitution to have liberty. They already had it. They were preserving this liberty from what they saw as the trespasses of the king. I mean, while the king's sitting there, like, you know, look, I just saved you guys' butt. I just pulled your butt out of the fire with the French and the Indians, and I just want you to pay some of the taxes to pay down the debt. Uh, but he's doing it in a rather heavy-handed way. And that's where the trouble is going to come in. Uh, if only George had the, <laughs> the good sense to be a little more pragmatic. Well, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, but but this is this this is the foundation of the concept of liberty, and so you can kind of see if you wind your way back through the course of Western civilization as it's a little bit more individualist, and slowly but surely as we go through the various permutations 
the break with the church, especially, you know, the rise of Protestantism, people starting to read the Bible for themselves. And the Bible speaks a lot of, you know, when you read the Bible, especially the, the, the Jewish part, which is concerned with laws about, you know, how you can treat your servants and uh, how you treat your animals and, you know, do not kill and do not commit adultery and these kinds of things. If you're reading all of this stuff, it's very easy to develop the idea that, you know, people have innate rights, that God wants us to treat each other with decency and, and love. Then you get to the Christian parts, and I, I'm no expert on Christianity, but, you know, then you get this, this Jesus guy going around saying, love your neighbor as yourself, and, and all this kind of thing. It's like, it, then it takes it even farther, you know, this idea of sort of uh, a free responsibility, you know, a responsibility to your neighbor, but, but you know, that you, that you care for your neighbor, not that you oppress your neighbor, right? Uh, you respect their rights and their body and their person and their property. Uh, and, you know, you, you help the poor and this kind of thing. And so these ideas, you know, these Protestant Christians are reading these ideas and it's fueling the fire, uh, adding gasoline to the fire, let's just say. Or since gasoline hasn't been invented yet where I am in history, uh, we're throwing wood on the fire or charcoal. Right? In any case, we're, we're, the fire is burning hotter and hotter in the, in the minds of uh, a lot of people who are reading these things and learning about these and thinking about liberty and this kind of thing and uh, developing the concepts that are going to blossom into American liberty, which again has already been created in essence de facto reality in the colonies. Greater self-reliance, volunteerism, uh, local communities dealing with problems themselves by, by people who know one another rather than the king from on high decreeing that from now on such and such shall be the case. And everybody's like, okay, that's what the king said. I guess we have to do it, you know. Uh, so um, I hope, and I know I, I, I jammed through a lot of history, I hope you can see the examples that I brought out as we go through Western civilization and the development of English uh of English history and English society and uh, the sort of Anglo, you know, as Winston turned to the Anglo-Saxon race, uh, how the sort of Anglo-American, English-speaking version of uh, liberty came into being. Uh, and it also involves a little bit of uh, the Celtic, uh, I just want to like stubbornness. I mean, the Scots, the Irish, the Scotch-Irish, the Welsh, um, all of these Celtic societies, these people have a very deeply rooted sense of, uh, you know, a little, they have a more relaxed culture, relaxed, have fun, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of good times and party culture and this kind of thing. They're, they're much funner cultures. When, when the English, you know, go to have fun, when we think about partying, we think more about Celtic stuff than we do about the English uh, themselves. But uh, they, they have a certain resilience and a resistance, like where we don't want to be ruled. The Irish don't want to be ruled by the English, and the Scots don't want to be ruled by the English, you know. And, and this uh, sort of stubborn, bullheaded, uh, I'm going to take care of myself kind of thing. And when you look at the colonies demographically, yes, it's, it's the English working classes that have gone over, and the lower classes, and they've gone over to the Americas to get their start, right? Uh, but also a lot of Celtic people are going over. A lot of Scots, a lot of Welsh, a lot of Irish, Scots-Irish, and uh, they're mixing in with the populations there. And that sort of stubborn, resilient resistance is being built in, even stealing a little bit, uh, and stealing like, you know, the metal, steel, uh, strengthening, toughening uh, the sense of liberty over there, just a certain obstinance. And so, 
you know, you have English people who are obstinate about their freedom and then they're mixed in with these Celtic people who are really obstinate about their own freedom and their, their rights and this kind of thing. And they're chewing on this high-minded ideals of life, liberty, and property. And, you know, the, the governments are instituted among men by deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. And we're living it in Massachusetts. We're living it in New York. We're living it in Virginia. And now the king comes over here and says, you're going to pay some taxes. We're going to, we're going to set this thing on fire. <laughs> Boom. Mic drop. Okay. Next time. As always, uh, everyone has value. Everyone was made in the image of their creator. And you have value too, whether you know it or not.